Welcome to Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight, and alongside me, we got our ghoulish knight, Philip Woodward. Welcome again, my friend. Thank you for doing part one, and you're here for part two. <laughs> hey, thank you for having me, Prince. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course, of course. Our other knights, both David and Freddie, are, are still doing the do. But it's okay. They're in our spirits. Rest in RIP. We are a group of knights with an absolute love for film and a passion for horror. This is a podcast that takes a different horror film to break down discuss the ultimate question. Why horror? So hit the lights, sit back, and let the darkness envelope you. You can support the show over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife. That's night with a what? My pleasure on Patreon. You have access to the show ad free and as early as Monday with the post show. But this show personally, actually, episode does not have a post show. This is actually a two-parter. But if you don't have any bucks, it's also where your new episode is released every single Friday on most podcast services around the world. Now, just to do a quick little recap for our listeners and such, the folks who are coming in and just like, yo, what the fuck happened? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't blame you. Um, But just to do a quick little recap uh, of part one, town comes, we get Stranger Ben who's just like, hey, <laughs> I, I used to live here. And everyone's like, yo, who the fuck are you? So he's doing his due. He meets this chick named Susan who looks like she's 30 years younger than him. And I'm putting a 10 on him too. Totally not 30 years, but maybe more like 28. So like, <laughs> you know, and then he dates her for five days and gets upset that she's leaving. And then the whole town's fucking infested with vampires. Because an evil house is trying to power up its hell mouth. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but all in all, part one was a fucking blast. Like, it, it's such a slow start, but it's a beautiful buildup for what we're about to get in part two, which we're going to discuss in just a moment. But before we do that, I need to say a big, big thank you to our patrons. And a thank you goes out to Matt, Andrew, Scary Stuff Podcast. Great podcast. Y'all should listen to it. Samantha, Patrick, uh, Willow, Taylor, uh, Jessica, uh, Sloan, Sandy, Jared, Petra, Jasmine, Chantel, Rio, Mark, Jesse, Joe, Kaylee, Rob, Eric, Day, uh, Freddie. Thank you, Freddie. Even though you're not here, still, thank you. Uh, my grandma, Yvonne, and my mom, Lola. Thank y'all so much for keeping the lights on, keeping us fed, keeping the podcast going because without y'all honestly we have no idea how we would pay for things <laughs> so we're doing it and thank you so much um for keeping the show going seriously it, it honestly means a lot to us so thank you uh but do you want you know what let's let, fuck it let's do it what do you think of part two what, what are your thoughts of part two i know we did like an overall thoughts in previous part one but what yeah. are your, what are your thoughts of part two because they're drastically so, different <laughs> when when my wife and i were watching this movie together she mentioned uh how old movies are always really interesting because they're really slow to start and yeah. then they build up and they kind of just go off the rails towards the end and the, all the supernatural stuff starts happening and i paused the movie and i was like jessica we're not even halfway done. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a and great thought. I think that's just a great way to introduce the second half, which doesn't stop. Like it doesn't slow down from this point on. It no. keeps ramping up and gets wilder and crazier until we get to the climax of the film. <laughs> and I, I agree. And, and, and the the first part, even though like in our previous episode, like we, we definitely were kind of like, not harsh. I wouldn't say harsh. We were playful. I would say we were playful towards yeah. part one. And it's mainly because part one does have some very strange inconsistencies. And it's a little slower. It is slower. It definitely is slower. And, and you don't find out that this town is inhabited by vampires until maybe, maybe 45, 50 minutes into part one. Um, and Part two is just like a fucking shotgun, just constantly. You know, a shotgun's not even the right analogy. A machine gun. Like this thing just keeps yeah. firing off. Like it's it just, it's not stopping. And and it's great. It's this is so fast. Like part two whizzed by compared to part one. It, but, it has so much going on that it just skips over details that are oh, happening yeah. throughout it because it doesn't have enough time to show it all. Right. Like it, it, it doesn't have any time to show. 80 of that shit and it and it's it's honestly kind of cool like i i yeah. love how how fast-paced part two is and i do like how much action we have kind of going on into it and the mystery and the peculiar aspect and the ante up on all of the t- different types of effects with like the hauntings and the the, the fucking vampire himself of barlow and things like that like it, it's great it's great. Like you, you, we see clammy Barlow and it, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump straight up into this. And based off of part one, we're not going to go over who the director is again and all that stuff. We're just going to jump right on in because we open to Ben coming back into Salem's lot inside the boarding house. He is on the phone with Susan asking her how the job interview go. He asks when she is coming home. She tells him Friday, Eva stops to listen into his conversation. Nosy as fuck. That's the thing about Eva though. Eva is nosy. She wants to know what is going on in her house. She's <laughs> definitely that lady that has the binoculars, like pulling down the oh, blinds, looking sure. across the, street for sure he continues um that he's having dinner with jason tonight while checking his watch smiling smiling that it will be just him and jason before telling her that uh, he misses her too and hangs up the phone eva comes into the room letting him know that ned was uh was there fixing the toilet sharing that he threatened him as well calling ben a nice guy and that she doesn't want to see him get hurt he thanks her on his uh, um, and he is on his way. And it's just like, man, you should have definitely taken that to heart because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when we get back to it, got to Mark in his room, working on some miniature sculptures. He overhears his parents arguing about him outside of his room, wondering if the Glick brothers have affected Mark, June telling Ted uh, to speak with, her, with their son. He claims that he doesn't show emotion much. And I wonder why, because you definitely sound like you don't show emotion much either, Ted. Like, <laughs> it's just... You literally brought your wife into the room to tell your son to stop doing his practicing of lines just yeah. so you can do your taxes. <laughs> it's just like, Dad, you'll never understand. <laughs> Jump to his parents conti- uh, continuing the arguments about Mark having to, uh, having to feel something. Asking Ted if he looked at him at the funeral. He claims that Mark helps... Uh, uh, Mark keeps his feelings inside. She concludes the conversation by wanting him to go into the woods, uh, um, but 
wanting him to go into not wanting him to go into the woods anymore. Ted goes to check on him. Um, and it's interesting because I'm, I'm like kind of surprised that the cops didn't suspect Mark. Sure. And, about the, the disappearances. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe because he's a kid, but like kids can fucking kill too. Like he's not that young. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, he's definitely uh, strong enough and tall enough there, uh, to be imposing. Like, yeah, de- definitely true. Like he doesn't. He looks like he's a kid. Like he looks like a teenager, but he definitely looks like he's eighteen or something like that. Like he yeah. doesn't look young, or that young, I should say. Yeah, there, there's a moment later where he like he belts out a grunt that I'm like, oh, that was pretty manly. Yes. Yes, it was. Ted asks Mark how he is. He tells his dad that he's fine as he continues working on his sculpture. Ted asks about his homework, but he was already finished. He picks up a set of cuffs asking if he could get out of them. And I love this. I love that he's like like a kind of weird magicianal kid, but it, it's pretty cool. Dude, I loved how excited he got. It was like, oh my God, my dad is showing interest in something that I enjoy. Yes, 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 yes please. Absolutely. Like that, that's all he wanted. He just wanted this relationship with his father. And it sucks that his dad is just like still like super closed off towards him when it comes to it. It's just like, oh, you don't have to show me you getting out of a knot. Like, I believe yeah, you. Your magic like, stuff is okay, whatever. Right, exactly. Mark claims that he um, he can get out of them easily, excitedly telling his dad uh, to put them on him. He does so, asking about the key, but that won't be necessary because Mark's a motherfucking boss. Mark <laughs> clanks the cuffs and gets out of them, wanting his dad to try a knot behind his back. Ted tells him some other time, asking about his interest with monsters and magic. Mark can't explain it, claim that he um, that is the way he is, using his father's passion as a, an example. His father's passion was numbers. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with liking numbers. Like, I remember that show back on <laughs> Fox or ABC or some shit, and I remember it, and did I watch it? No. But I remember it. So, like, the fascination with numbers, like, I get it. I definitely get it. Uh, Ted comments that um, at least he can earn a living. Mark, knowing that he can, uh, that he can with with his passions as well. I probably unlocked, like, some crazy memory for people, which is like, oh, fuck, numbers? Oh, shit. That's got that guy from Santa Claus in it. (laughs) He plays the head elf. Inside the police department, Parkins uh, comes inside his colleague Nolly, um, hanging up the phone with the FBI. He tells Parkins that he can't that he got the rundown on Ben Straker and Barlow. He continues that Straker is British, fifty eight years old, applied um, for a visa for an extended visa eighteen months ago, no criminal record. Barlow was born in Germany, left in the twenties before Hitler neutralized British. Uh, He's a naturalized British, excuse me, and changed his name uh, from uh, Breiken. He and he's been in the import business with Straker since 1943, and he travels alone, claiming that Straker stays in front. Parkin says, um, Parkin asks about Ben. Nolly reads that Ben was born in Salem's lot, left at 10. His wife died in a car accident two years ago, and he and he has no record. Parkin is straight up just like, what the fuck? Like, he lived here? Like, I, what the fuck? Yeah. I was here. <laughs> like, he was here until he was 10? How do I not remember this kid? Uh, Parkin's belief, and you know what's another thing that's really fucking interesting here? Okay. So, Jason... All of a sudden, like, and granted, yeah, you can you can switch in different grades and shit in schools, but like, j- usually that doesn't happen if you're like tenure. You're just you usually stay in the same grade. Mm. 
is Mark supposed to be Ted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's like, wait a second. Some shit ain't added up here. <laughs> Jason had this kid in his had been in his class until he was dead or whatever and Mark looks like he's fucking 30 <laughs> is he supposed to be dead I can't, I can't get my numbers straight here <laughs> fuck I don't know anyway Parkins believes that there's no that there's a connection with Straker and Ben because of the assassination with the Marson house Ben meets Jason for dinner <laughs> I fucking can't deal with it Jason asking uh, um, how the book is going he he tells him hard Jason understands that um that it is to live all, that it is hard to Excuse me. Jason understands that it is uh, hard to live off of. Um, he asks if Marston, if the Marston House is still the uh, is still the center of the story, wondering if he connects the click uh, the clicks to the house. Ben is keeping it in a story, knowing that everything is in the town is connected to this house, calling it a beacon, throwing off an energy force. They are startled by Micah dropping on the on their table. Ben helping him to, into his seat. That I'm not gonna lie, that shit jump scared the fuck out of me. I yeah. forgot that that completely happened, and I was and I, I was like, oh my god, watching this with headphones in and him you know, calling the house a beacon also connects back to what we were talking about about maybe the house being kind of like the the uh, hotel in The Shining and yeah. being like trying to gather all of these evil forces there. Absolutely, absolutely. Mike greets Jason. He wonders if he's on on any drugs. Mike spaces out, but tells him that he feels sick. Jason and Ben give a glance to each other. Jason continues asking since uh, since when. Mike tells him that they found his do- his dog dead. Uh, then the funeral yesterday, and that he fell asleep on Harmony Hill and didn't wake up until this morning. Ben asks if um if this was after the funeral it was him saying that he went he went to finish and he started to feel sick he is looking looking around for a waiter to ask for a drink um and i love how you can see like the two bite necks right on his neck right there mm-hmm. that is spot on for me i also but, like how drink is whiskey like i was thinking like water like get this man some some water but i guess right. it's 1979 <laughs> right it's just like get this man some whiskey he needs it <laughs> stat (laughs) it's so interesting it's so weird but hey whatever Uh, Ben calls the witness for whiskey Jason asking what Mike remembers he tells them that he remembers singing feeling like he was drowning commenting that he saw glowing eyes that were scary but he can't remember who he he throws the drink back Ben asking if he slept there the entire night he did saying that he remembered a dream about somebody outside and him letting him in. Ben asks who, but he still doesn't know. Jason tells him that he wants him to stay as his out at his house tonight, and they will arrange to see Bill tomorrow. He agrees, although he doesn't care. I would have sent his ass to urgent care so fast, like, no, you're not staying at my house. I do think this is interesting, though, because this goes back to what we were talking about, about the unspoken rules of vampires, oh, and how yes. he just invited him in right. to his home. So I think I, that's I, interesting. I love how it comes back later mm-hmm. as a revocation as well. Yes. Like that is just spot on on that. Like, yeah, good, good, de- definitely good eye, Phil, because that, that right there specifically is very pleasant to see this so early on. Mark is asleep in bed, but suddenly opens his eyes, looking toward his window. The, fl- the fog flowing downward as Danny comes to his window with, with his glowing yellow eyes and fang-producing smile. 
Um, I do really like this fog effect, how it kind of looks like it's going inside or being emulated throughout the vampires. Like yeah. they're the reasons why the fog is there. He gets out of bed. Danny taps and scratches the window, asking Mark to open the window to let him in, telling him telling him that he quote unquote commands it. Mark grabs the knob, uh, grabs the knob of the window, te- tears forming in his eyes, but he lets go. Danny telling him no. Mark grabs the, grabs a cross from his sculpture set, pointing it at the window. And fucking great. This is the point we'd be making as horror fans. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just if a zombie apocalypse ever happens, the horror fans are the only people who know what to actually fucking do. And that's that's the great thing about him being a horror fan. And what? again, instead of throwing out some exp- exposition about why crosses are going to work, we as horror fans, even back in 1979, know that crosses repel vampires. So right. he picks up the cross, repels the vampire because he also is a horror fan. Absolutely. So he understood and knew what what was happening. He knew that he wasn't in that right mindset and he was being set in this trance and he was able to fight that, which fucking awesome. That's great. Danny writhes and cover and while covering his face, Mark yelling for him to go away as Danny floats backwards, shooting his, his face. I would have loved for Mark's parents to come in at this moment and, and to be like, like, are you okay? Like, what are you? Cause he's yelling this Mm -hmm. and i i would have loved for them to kind of come in at that point in time well and this this is why i think that it hit the sound does not travel as far as they're saying it does right because he does come in just like five minutes too late (laughs) right that's true that's true uh mark moves back tears flowing from his eyes as he sits back um to lie down in bed cross in hand he looks at the cross his dad coming into his room he asks mark if he uh, if he um if he's awake and um and if he had a bad dream, Mark isn't sure. His dad mentioning that he called out uh, in his sleep and if he wants anything. He tells Ted no, and uh, they give their good, good nights before leaving out of his room. Mark clutches his cross closer to him. So uh, that part scared me. The, the, you talked about, um, about Mike crashing the dinner, kind of getting you, startling you. Yeah. The dad just suddenly opening the door all loud like that's that fair. got me. Yeah, and, no, that's completely fair him not remembering what exactly happened goes back to what we were talking in the first episode of the mm-hmm. vampire bites almost being like a mystic trance instead of like the full-on regular vampire exactly. bites. It's almost romanticized right. instead of um, being this brutal reality. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I, I love that the the way that they speak when they are uh, vampires, it, it, it's, it is very Transylvania-like. Like it, it, it's, it feels poetic and it feels romantic and it, it, it feels luring. Like it, it feels like they are literally luring you in by their gaze and their voice. And it's quite magnificent meanwhile mike is in in jason's room he knocks on the door for mike he allow he allows jason to come in to uh hand him some clothes he notices the marks on mike's neck asking him where he got that from mike holds the marks claiming that he doesn't know jason closes the window telling mike to call him in the night if he needs anything he tells mike that he will be right down the hall before leaving out of the room mike oddly commenting quote unquote i will he puts on his shirt, then sits on the bed, holding the side of his neck where the bite marks are. Cuts a bin, working on his book, looking out of his his window at the Marston house. Back with Jason trying to sleep, but his head is hurting as he hears instinct, indistinct chatter and laughter. His heart begins to pound as it is about as 
and is about to get out of bed. I love this. I love how you can hear it. It's just that mm-hmm. that constant, just pounding, pounding, pounding. It's great. Eva knocks on Ben's door, letting him know that he has a phone call. He opens the door asking um, her who it is. It is Jason. He asks um, what t- for the time, and it's a little after 4 a.m. She uh, And I love how she's like already up. Yeah, <laughs> like she's already up. She's done up. She knows, like she's 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 ready for the day. Uh, and he's like, he looks completely disheveled. I was like, you play a perfect tired person. <laughs> like, uh, she she lets him know that Jason sounds quite upset. He closes the door to get a bit more uh, decent. Coming back um, out with his robe on, going downstairs to the phone. He picks up the phone, asking him what's wrong, telling Jason to give him ten minutes. Jason, I would have been like, why do I have fucking ten minutes? Get over here right now. <laughs> Jason asks him, um, asks him a question uh, about his faith. Ben exclaiming that he was he's uh, was a Baptist. He calls for Jason, but nothing nothing on the line. Hanging up the phone, he asks if Eva has a rosary or a crucifix. She has one in her bedroom, wondering why he would need it need it if Jason isn't Catholic. Ben speeds over to Jason's. They creep up the stairs to where Mike is. Uh, Mike is staying cross in hand. Mike is in his bed, eyes closed, Jason claiming that he he shut and locked the the window before he left, Um, but now it's open. Ben goes to look out of the window, noticing that the sun is now coming up. Jason calls over, excuse me, Jason calls to Ben um, to take a look at the speck of blood on the bedsheet. He tries to wake Mike, his hand dropping on the side table, touching his wrist, noticing that there is there isn't a pulse. Jason asks about the marks on his neck. Ben moves his, his head, not seeing any marks. They are sitting at his kitchen table, Jason thinking that Ben doesn't believe him about the marks. Ben tells him that he has to believe him, but wonders where this... Uh, where this puts them. Ben speculates that he he could have died from some type of virus. Jason goes over the events of the window, the marks of Mike's neck, and hearing him invite someone into his room. Hearing a terrible laugh, Ben asks if he if he knows when if he knows what would happen if he told if he told anybody else exactly what he's telling him. Running a senile scenario to him, reminding him that he saw a body, he's an outsider, a writer, and a crazy person. He tells him to call Bill and the constable, telling him not to not to share share, share that he's dead to Bill. Jason claims that he's not dead, Ben shouting that they don't know if he is or not, allowing the medical folk to check it out, letting him find the cause of death. This is genius. Yeah. I, I love that it's just like, Allow them to do the work. Don't give them any clues. Just say like, yo, he's here. Act like you were going to do this anyway, which you technically were. You did say we're going to call Bill in the morning and let's get him here so we can, you know, he's not waking up. I don't know if he's dead or not. Yep. Super smart. Cut to the coroner putting Mike into the trunk of the hearse, which is technically not a hearse. It's like a station wagon. Uh, <laughs> Jason commenting about how Mike used to drive those, not knowing he would end up in, end up in one so soon. Parkins tells Ben that he w- he wants him to testify for the coroner's jury. He tells Parkins that he'll be there. He goes back to his cruiser so he can complete his paperwork. Bill comes up to Jason asking if he... Um, if it was what he wanted to tell him. Jason asked if there were anyone else who has been feeling weak or had bad dreams. Bill tells him no. 
been commenting that there soon will be. Jason asks if he believes in ghosts, witches, wizards, werewolves, vampires. Bill's telling him, of course not. He brings Bill inside to ask him for his help, hoping he gives it if he decide if he doesn't decide that he's crazy. Eva is ironing, Ben greeting her, and she lets him know that she heard she heard about Mike. He is tired, letting her know that he he's going to have some coffee and get some sleep. That sounds uh quite the opposite. <laughs> Just gonna, a little. Just I'm going to drink some coffee and I'm going to go ahead and take a nap after uh, this uh, caffeine hits me. Knocks me <laughs> sure on out. I do know some people who actually do drink a cup of coffee right before bed. My mom being one of them. She she actually drinks a shot of espresso before bed. And I'm just like... Cool. I'm, I'm like six hours later. If that's the yeah, case. for real. I'm just like... Fuck, I would have the jitters. Like, yeah. <laughs> she asked why Jason wanted the crucifix. He lies that Jason thought Mike was Catholic. Eva letting him know that she, um, that he should have known that all, all Mike's people are Lutherans. Well, Eva, <laughs> you didn't know that I lived in this fucking town beforehand. So <laughs> she, she brings up the fact that he's going to miss the antique shop opening. He asks if Barlow ever, sh- ever showed, but uh, she doesn't know. Uh, she doesn't know, but she knows that they're opening the store today. What a surprise. Um, people are going, are coming and going from the antique shop. Uh, Mark and his mom inside. June asking if his dad would like an antique. I love how the whole fucking town, like this was like the talk of the town. That everybody in the town wanted to go to this antique shop. And it's just like, I mean, I personally would not have been stoked for this, but granted, <laughs> if this is the most exciting thing in my town, then so sure. I can actually I can actually speak on this. There is a, a day uh every single year in in the same town where uh, I forget what it's called off the top of my head right now, but it's like a garage sale day where everybody in the town like takes a bunch of stuff that they're willing to sell and puts it out in like a yard sale. And people from all over come and uh, come to this sale from like, even from like Santa Rosa and uh, like even Oregon come down for this like sale weekend where people are selling a bunch of stuff. And this um, is in your randomly. town. Yeah, this is in Ferndale. This is in the place in where Salem's Lot uh, was filmed. Ferndale, California. So, you are more and more interesting every day. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, um, it's definitely something that happens. Um, bargain weekend. I forget. Anyway, um, it's definitely something that happens when there's like that big event. Like it was, since it's such a small town, people just flock to it because it's something to do. That's so interesting. It, it, and see, it's weird because I, I, I'm from a, a very large city. <laughs> I'm from San Francisco. So right. me being from San Francisco, like we, the, the max of things that we would probably do something similar to this is when we have like little things in certain parks around San Francisco, like Ghirardelli Square during Christmas time. Like that's like a, a lot of people in San Francisco and San Franciscans especially will go to Ghirardelli Square yeah, over, uh, the uh, Union Square, and mainly because uh, a lot of tourists kind of they'll go, but they won't like flock. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, he guesses so. She calls over Straker, letting him know that her husband's birthday is next week. She looks at the price, Straker, letting her know that the price is reasonable, but he can't <laughs> go any lower than that. And I really wanted to know how much that thing was, right? Because <laughs> she was just like, "I cannot afford this." Great. 
letting her know that he could hold it for her till the end of the week. She's appreciative. Mark glancing at him before they leave. Mark staring at Ben entering into the room after them. Straight, and this was odd. Yeah, they're connect. They they have some sort of connection. It's right. again going back to The Shining. Like it's almost like they are both people that have the shine. They right. it's just like a really low percentage of it. Yeah, but they still feel that spiritual connection. Exactly, and that's that's what this feels like. It feels like this is just like an unspoken telepathic thing that the connection that they're having, um, where they feel bounded. It seems like which is great for later uh, context as well. Straker continues showing customers around the shop talking about his artifacts. Ben picks up a fork, Straker commenting that it is English, Ben correcting him that it's Georgian. Straker is impressed, <laughs> Ben sharing that he knows it because his family had to sell the silver from his aunt um, when she died. He lets Straker know that his aunt used to uh, be, a, be a housekeeper at the Marston house. It's actually pretty funny what Straker says to him. He's like, that's an unfortunate way to learn about silver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Straker finds that interesting. Ben sharing that he's always been curious about the house. Straker comments that he will allow him inside the house to satisfy his curiosity. Ben brings up that a lot of peculiar things have happened there. Continuing the story that the man murdering his wife and servant uh, when he built it, even though it has never been proven, he was still suspected um, in the disappearance of children. He asks if Straker believes if evil can inherit in a house. Straker scoffs that he doesn't, using the metaphor of trees having souls. Ben commenting that they that they just may, Straker now understanding who he's speaking with, calling him the writer. Wondering if he's working, Ben sharing that he's writing about the Marston house. Straker allowing him to come over and visit when Barlow comes back from his trip, sharing that they will be, enjoy each other. Cut to Ben going about. I, oh, please. Sorry. I, no. I just, there's the comment where uh, Straker says uh, Barlow will enjoy Ben. And yes. I, I took that into the more vampiric way of him oh, saying absolutely. it. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. When you think of it now, like with the context of even knowing who Barlow is and things like that, like he says this every single time. And it is more of like a feeding type mm-hmm. of situation. Like the way he's talking about it, it's like more of a devouring type of situation, which mm-hmm. is. Honestly, fucking genius. Like, it's really, really great stuff. Yeah. Got to Ben going back into his room at the boarding house, about to lie down, but Ned <laughs> springs up behind a dressing board, punching Ben straight in the face, knocking him out, and still whooping his ass for being with Susan. God <laughs> damn. <laughs> ben. Ben. What? I, so. I don't remember that wardrobe being there earlier. It wasn't. So, so like. <laughs> Did, did how did he, how did Eva not notice Ned dropping off this wardrobe and like getting inside of it and then like how easily it busted when he like gets he out legit <laughs> solid snaked his ass right? like he just solid snaked his ass like he like I feel the exclamation point just popped on his head and he was like I'm gonna fuck him up like this is it like I'm gonna fuck him up and he did Ned whooped his ass <laughs> Ben I heard you were sleeping with my girlfriend now you've got to die. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that was like very, very perfect. That was a perfect snake rip. Oh, wow. I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. That was great. Uh, he wakes up in the hospital with a bandage on his head. I'm going to take a quick swig of water. Swig done. Bill comes into the room, letting him know that he took a beating, but he is he has us only a slight concussion. Asking him if he understands, Ben telling him that he does. Bill also letting him know, um, letting him know how 
oh, excuse me, Bill also letting him know that they are going to keep him there for observation. Bill agree or Ben agrees as as Bill is leaving out. He tells him that Ned was arrested, thinking that he doesn't he doesn't think he will do it again. Ben changes the subject. Ben changes the subject, wondering if anyone is sick in the hospital. Bill tells him uh, that they have a few new admissions. He sighs, knowing what he means, telling him no. Ben brings up what Jason told him, but Bill doesn't believe, knowing knowing that nobody else will either, telling him that, to take it easy. Ben requests for a crucifix. Bill allowing the arrangement if it makes him feel better. Jason I, is I like reading that part. I, I like that he that. allowed him the the crucifix, even though he's skeptical about this whole thing. You know, like I feel like in some modern movies, he'd been like, "No, it's stupid." And then, yeah. you know, a vampire would have attacked in the hospital later that night or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I really like the fact that he he allowed him to do it. Like, he he knows that Ben very much believes this is what's going on in this town. So, therefore, to make him feel better, like, okay, sure, we're going to go ahead and, and just let you be crazy and we'll go ahead and feed to your crazy or whatever. Um, For but, now. For now, exactly. For now, um, Jason is reading multiple books on creatures, more specifically vampires. He opens a book, but he stops when there when there is some uh, clattering upstairs. Sitting the book down, crucifix in hand, he gathers the courage to check it out. In the hallway, the creaking of a rocking chair is heard behind the door that Mike was staying in. Jason flings the door open. Mike is in the rocking chair, his eyes pointed downward. He's in a trance. Mike's bringing his gaze to him, telling him to look at him. Jason tries his hardest not to. Mike continuing to repeat it as he comes closer to him. Jason tells him no. Holding the crucifix, Mike starts moving backwards toward the window as Jason approaches him, revoking his invitation and telling him to get out. Mike tells him that they'll see the see by, by the day. Jason shouts no. Mike falling backwards out of the window. Uh, Jason goes to check, but Mike isn't there. He starts having a heart attack, struggling to get out of the room as he clutches his chest. He makes it to his room, falling on his bed and reaching for the phone. This is fucking amazing. Yeah, like I loved this whole scene. I loved everything about this. Every the way it was shot, just like the the Fantastic. creaking of the um the rocking chair. Oh. Like you you knew what it was before you got up there and then to see him actually in it, it just completed that visual image and Absolutely. he looked yeah, he looked so crazy and you could tell he hadn't quite like adapted to it like other right. the other vampires had. Like it was still kind of like fresh for him. Yeah. Un- unlike some of the other ones that had kind of adapted to their powers already, um, right. whether it was because they were kids and he's an adult or, or whatever else. Or, um, or, I, or maybe it was even the fact too, that he was uh, already pre-invited, right? Sure. So maybe yeah, he, didn't he didn't need have to, to kind of do the floating or have to trance or anything like that. Um, but I, I think, I think, what they were trying to do, like you said, is kind of they use this trance to find that trust and that bond to where they can seep their teeth into their neck, but very, very calmly, very, very, I guess, respectful. <laughs> they, sure. they suck their blood respectfully. <laughs> uh, but it's it's interesting. It, it's, it's a really interesting case. But in my opinion, Mike is my favorite vampire look like he looks so sinister yep. he looks so so drained and he just he looks great he's a great visual vampire in this yeah you, you can tell like oh, have we seen barlow in person yet no Not i don't yet. Think we have yet, yet. okay I won't, I won't go into that um but yeah as far as the human vampires go 
you can see where the the influences come from in modern yes. vampire designs. Absolutely. Like, it took inspiration from some of the stuff in here, which is really cool. Absolutely. And, and it also feels like this did take uh, a bit of inspiration from uh, uh, not Dawn of the Dead, but Day of the Dead. Um, mm. With like the purple zombies and things like that, because we get that very purplish oh, color and stuff. Okay, like that. so people obviously aren't going to know this, but I'm I'm partially colorblind. Oh, so I I could not. I knew that their color was like an ashen color, mm-hmm. but I couldn't quite tell what color their skin was. Yeah, so it's like it's like a purplish gray, um, and it's it's it feels like they're kind of. It feels like they're decaying. Like it looks like they're decaying. Like they're starting to rot in a way. So mm. it's 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 a very fascinating color choice that they choose. Almost like an asphyxiation of our swords. Exactly. Like. Then that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like someone choked choked them to death. Um, and they look they look cold, pretty much. So they they look cold. But yeah, that's. I'm glad you shared that. Uh, yes. Cuts to Ned asleep in a jail cell, turning over, awoken by someone waving their hand to unlock the uh, the cell. A yellow-eyed vampire with fangs for the, for his two front teeth growls at him. Ned, silent with fear, fucking great. That reveal of Barlow is fan fucking tastic. Yeah. Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah, uh, very very Nosferatu. Yes. Um, it was so good. So and good. I was thinking um, in my notes here. I, I actually, since I had started thinking about the vampiric rules of the movie, I was mm-hmm. like, "How come he was able to get in? Did someone else let him in? Did you know his familiar let him in?" And then that's a great I, question. I thought, or is it because he's the master? And, and, and I think that's what it has to. be. Be, right, that he's the master, and that I'll speak he on it a little bit range. more in another scene that happens soon. Okay, Henry is washing up uh, when he hears glass breaking downstairs. His he calls to his wife, but receives no no response. Going downstairs, he notices his wife on the ground in the kitchen. She's mumbling something. He t- he tells her that she's going to call the doctor. She tells him no, and she and that she's weak. He knows um, that she hasn't been sleeping, but shares that she's been dreaming about their son, Danny. Screw Ralph. Yeah, I know, yeah, because <laughs> Ralph is just completely out of the mix here. It's just, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Henry tells her that uh, that's normal as she explains what he tells her in the dreams. Meanwhile, Ben is checking out the hospital, greeted by Susan, letting her know that uh, he's fine. She she knows he's okay, sharing the news of Ned dying last night in jail. Ben is shocked. I would have he was probably he's like faking shock too. He's just like, <laughs> oh wow, yeah, fuck oh, that sucks. No. <laughs> oh no, not Ned. <laughs> <laughs> ben is, she continues that he died from uh, anemia. He mentions that it is like Danny. She adds that Marjorie died this afternoon as well, asking if the same symptoms, wondering what does Bill have to say about it. Bill wants to speak with Ben as she continues that Jason is currently in intensive care from a heart attack, but he's stable. Ben uh, walks away, telling Susan to go back to Boston, calling it a plague in, in the town, coming from the Marson house, and that in that it's have been that it has to be destroyed. Ben is visiting Jason, uh, watching as he lies there before leaving out of the room to take a message from our sponsors. And we're back as he goes up to Susan and asking for Father Callahan, because what do you do when things happen like this? 
you turn a faith in movies. That's that's how this works, everybody. I gotta say, the outside of that church was really cool with the like dangling so fucking cool. light thing. I don't know what to call it, but I don't even know what to call it either. It was really cool. It was so cool. Like the like I and I was even thinking like, what's up with the lit up clock? Because that's rad. And like, also, it's I can so show cool. you that church. <laughs> does it does it really have a clock? Uh, not not in the way that it does in the movie. Like that's okay. that doesn't exist. But okay. there there is some really cool stuff and design work in that church. Um, that's so rad. And it's yeah the same one that they uh, will utilize for holy water later. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, that's fucking cool. You yep. know, like the uh, the thing that I'm learning about this episode, everybody, is that uh, I need to go visit Ferndale. Like, <laughs> I need to I need to make the four hour trek up to Ferndale. I can show you the stuff in Outbreak where that. Oh yeah! Oh hell happen. yeah! That'll be great. That Coca Cola machine in the very beginning of the movie when they're driving down is still on that building. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they meet with him at the church. Um, Callahan shares that the concept of evil in the Catholic church has undergone a radical change, which I love. I love that concept of just like, this isn't what we do in the church anymore. Like we don't believe in ghosts. We don't believe in um, exorcisms and so on and so forth. Yeah. And that's, that's right around the time, like the exorcist had come out, like, you yeah, know, not, two years not right around, but yeah, like right after. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I bet in a lot of ways the church really didn't want to associate itself with, with that sort of thing. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> ben chimes in, naming off creatures, Susan adding vampires to the fold. They ask if they notice anything strange. Callahan finding it. It's so funny how like shocked they look when they say vampires. <laughs> Like, they name up all these creatures. They're just like, oh, no, far fetch, far fetch, far fetch. Vampire. Vampires are like, <gasps> don't you didn't just say that. <laughs> they ask if they if they notice anything strange. Callahan finding it odd that Mrs. Mal- uh, Malloy wasn't at, at mass since she never misses. He adds Marjorie, writing her off to, uh, to her son passing. Ben um, adds Ned and Mike into the list of names he's forgotten in the list of coincidences. Cut to Ben speaking Bill it's funny because I would have been like if I was Callahan I would have been like but they don't come to church so like (laughs) why would I know about them got to Ben speaking uh, speaking to Bill outside his house Susan waiting by the car Ben comes um, down to her sharing that her dad is going to do it and they'll have uh, medical evidence as well he instructs her to get uh, get some Hawthorne and put it around the house and crucifixes she doesn't think her mom will allow that Ben cutting her off that she has to letting her know that the vampires are breeding and creating more vampires fucking love that that concept of and i've never thought of that as mm-hmm. a concept of when vampires take on another vampire that is their form of breed and mm-hmm. that is so fascinating to me and i've never conceptualized it that way but that is literally it yeah it's so I mean, cool it, when you think about the sire they think about them as their children so like yes. when one of them dies it really breaks them or when right. the the master dies depending on the lore of course um right. and the va- the master vampire dies then the lower vampires are really upset by losing that that parental figure right. um and that actually goes into something that happens later in the film um at the very end mm-hmm. um, which I, I find really interesting i agree um but uh, yeah, really cool. I, the Hawthorne was something that I, I had never heard of before. That's something, and it's like yeah. how, how versed in vampire lore is Ben, and why is he so versed in it? <laughs> uh, like, it, it, it seemed like he, I guess he 
because he read the books, right? Like, was he the one reading the books? Or no, that Jason was Jason was the one reading the books. Maybe I assume Jason probably just gave him the cliff notes. Then I mean, I think he's a, he may be a horror writer, so in in that sense, he's been a horror fan his entire life. That's why he was that's drawn right. to the creepy house. So maybe he's a lot like uh, Mark in that regard, and that's why Mark and him have such a connection. Um, yeah. But still, it was just really interesting. A, I'd never heard of Hawthorne as being a vampire repellent before. Yeah, and B, right. I was just like, damn, he's really well versed in vampire stuff. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I, 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 I had to look it up right now. Um, and it's it, it, literally a, a something for vampires fandom um, yeah. where it says plants effective uh, against vampires. Roses, the scent of a, the scent of a rose is supposed to keep vampires at bay. The thorns mm. are said to trap vampires in their graves, and even the petals are said to damage a vampire. Blackthorn, uh, Romanians, uh, Romanians kept it sewn in their clothing to prevent from attacks. But it doesn't really huh. bring up anything about Hawthorn. Um, Oh, here's here's another website, Vampire Underworld. I, I'm I'm going to, going to a too much of a deep dive now, everybody. But <laughs> hey, <laughs> they are interrupted by Bill coming coming out telling them that Ned's body has disappeared from the morgue, and a baby that died is also gone. Ben thinks of Marjorie. Bill knowing that she's buried, but they hop in this car. Ben leaving uh, leaving Susan with a. a a uh, reminder of Hawthorne. Mark is sitting down with his parents and Callahan, them upset about his interest with monsters and shit. I mean, come on, man. Let my <laughs> dude live, all right? Callahan tells them uh, to not make those judgments, asking him if he's sure this wasn't a dream. Mark tells tells him that it wasn't and that he saw Danny. June tells him that the nightmares seem real, the light flickering over their head. And I love this. I love yeah. how no one notices it right away. Yeah. And like... And it's it's interesting. It's like June notices, but she keeps it kind of to herself. Like she kind of looks yep. up, like "What the fuck?" kind of thing. Um, but they just keep the conversation going. And it's great. His dad, uh, his dad, adding that his subconscious fear made Danny seem real. June adding that they were very close. The light flickers again right before the phone rings. Ted is about to pick it up. The light bursting overhead and the table shaking and rattling. Cabinets opening as the house seems uh, seems. Con- as the house uh, continues to violently rumble around them, something in a black coat crashes through the window. This looks fucking awesome. Yeah. It's just like the cape that just crashes well, through the window. Yeah, it reminded me of the idea of like vampires turning into mist. Yes. So like he was semi-solid going through the window, and then with, by the time he hit the ground, was like completely mist, and then reforms into oh uh, himself. It's so cool how he just rises up slowly, revealing himself to be the yellow-eyed vampire, Barlow. Barlow headbutts the parents and kills them immediately. Fantastic. Mark trying to attack him. Callahan holds a crucifix as Barlow holds Mark by the throat. Um, Straker comes into the kitchen, letting him know that they can't do do anything to the master. He shoes the priest back, asking him what would... Uh, what, uh, would he give for Mark? And I understand this is a portion that you kind of wanted to bring back up and revisit. Um, let me finish this last little bit yep. here, and then we'll we'll uh, talk about that because I do want to talk about that. Callahan asks, "What uh, what do they want?" Shrieker sharing that Barlow wants him throwing away his cross. Fa- uh, uh, 
face him with Callahan's faith versus Barlow's faith, asking if his faith is enough. Barlow reaches for him, Callahan telling Mark to run, Barlow releasing him. He checks on his parents, thinking that they they are dead. Callahan tells him to run, Mark threatening Barlow before running out of the room. Straker brings up his part of the bargain instructing him to throw away the cross to face the master. He holds it up, Barlow throwing it out of his hand. Oh, man. So just to bring back up your portion here and and, uh, to reiterate what you said uh, a little bit earlier is that you said that uh, you had the question of if Barlow can kind of go anywhere he wants to because he's considered the master or is this the reason uh, Straker is technically around, able to kind of Invite him everywhere. Exactly. And I have a theory about Straker, actually. Um, with Straker being not necessarily Barlow's familiar per se, but I think Straker's the actual master here. Like, I think Straker is the one calling the actual oh, shot. Interesting. So I, I took it, it for Straker, I, I took him more as uh, a familiar in the way that in certain vampire lore, if you drink from a vampire without their bite, yes. it gives you supernatural power, right? but also like binds you to that vampire. So that's how I kind of thought it worked is that he Straker was his um, kind of familiar and he drank of Barlow's blood, which is why some stuff is able to happen later on in the movie. Right. Um, but he's still able to go out in the daylight and he's still able to have uh, his demise the way that it happens and stuff like that. Which makes total sense. Um, and I, and the reason why I even say, and it's an off-the-wall theory, like I, I totally don't think the theory is right, but with this being such an off-the-wall theory, the reason why I say uh, that I feel like he's the, that he's the master is that like, in a way, he kind of commands Barlow, like he nods at Barlow to let Mark go. Mm. Um, and I, I, I thought that was fascinating. I was like, "Oh, that's that's an interesting touch." But I'm I'm right there with you. Like, I, I totally think you're right to where he drank the blood of Barlow, and now he's like bound to Barlow for the you rest. You know of what, his life. though, you're not wrong because it doesn't seem like Barlow can really speak. Right. So even though uh, Straker is his technically his familiar and and whatnot because he's been his mouthpiece for so long, I exactly. wonder if there's like almost not like a stock, I guess kind of like a Stockholm thing there yeah. where he almost is kind of commanding Barlow in a way. Right. And that's, um, that's, you know, and that's also a great point. And I love the addition of, um, Barlow having Straker because I believe in the book and granted once again everyone I didn't read the book but I believe I've, I've read this somewhere that in the book Straker doesn't exist oh and, interesting um, that Barlow can speak in the book for himself but I don't know how true that is um, and I just remember reading something about them making Straker because he's that important actually you know what I think I am right I think Straker doesn't exist and I think Barlow can speak for himself because in the 2004 version, they claim that one was more towards the novel um, where Barlow in that version did speak for himself. And he was actually super suave and super elegant. And uh, he didn't look anything like a monster, pretty much. He just looked like a regular dude who can make things pop in and out of his face. Interesting. And, and I think he could walk during the day, but I don't know. So- uh, 
so real quick, yeah, yeah. So what we were talking about is is Barlow busts through the window without being yes. invited in, um, and then he holds the cross as if it's basically nothing, like it doesn't even affect me. Right. So I do think that depending on how powerful the vampire is, maybe uh, he can withstand certain things because. There is like this moment of him, even though he's being so badass, there's like almost an air of where he's like not comfortable, if that makes sense. So maybe he can only break those laws for like a certain amount of time. That um, makes sense. Before, like a a little bit of a timer or an exhaustion. Yeah, because there there are some. Yeah, there are some um, vampire lore where like a vampire can go into a house without um, being invited, but it like physically hurts them. I think the strain, I feel like the strain has a scene like that where he like busts through and grabs somebody really yes, quickly. You're right. And, and like then he goes out. Um, yes. The strain has that. Another thing, um, the one that comes to mind for me is let the right one in, mm. um, where pretty much the kid asks like, what's going to happen if you, if I don't invite you in and she steps right. in and she starts bleeding from every yeah, office. everywhere. Yeah. So, um, so maybe the stronger versions of vampires still have that happen, but it's a slower right. process or something. Maybe. maybe. Oh, that's a good thought. Anyway. Cut to the funeral home, checking on Marjorie, Ben asking Bill what he thinks um, as he looks at her. He uh, places the sheet over her, commenting that it is very familiar to Mike's uh uh, signs with signs missing. He tells Ben that he's going to call him and check on them. Ben assuring him that they'll be fine if they allow instructions. Uh, Bill leaves to make sure they do. Ben continuing uh, uh, continues making a makeshift cross. <laughs> uh, it's like out of like those sticks that they use in the I, uh, the hospital. Doctor's wooden tongue stick. Yeah, that, that is great. That's absolutely it. Watching both of the uh, both of the time tick by in Marjorie's body. He speaks to bless the cross as he watches her body. As he continues, her body begins to start moving. He calls, for, and this is fucking great because, like, yeah. I'm obviously t- speaking on this, but th- he's looking at her body and she's not moving for a solid few cuts, and it's awesome because, yeah. like, it's like it's so much intensity of just like, is she gonna move? Is she not gonna move? Like, is she actually dead? Or like, is she a vampire? Like, what's going on? Um, so that was great. He continues. Um, her body begins. Her body begins to start moving. He calls for Bill as he uh, begins praying louder and calling him. I love this. He's like Bill. <laughs> she sticks her hand out of the sheet, calling for her son as she rises from the table, uh, looking around the room. And her eyes look awesome. Like the yep. glow on this one is just fantastic. Ben continues screaming for Bill. Marjorie snarling at Ben. Bill comes back into the room. Uh, ben telling Bill not to look into her eyes. Bill slices her arm with, a, and it's just like all of a sudden, okay, Bill, now you believe. Uh, uh, but uh, Bill slices her arm with the scalpel. She pushes him. Ben burning her, uh, burning her with his cross of sticks on her forehead. Uh, she screams. Faith until versus she- faith. That's it. She screams until she disappears. They are driving back. Ben shares that that he called a friend in San Francisco who who practices the occult, quoting that they have to get they have to get to Barlow during the day before sunset inside his coffin, driving a stake through his heart. Bill asks about Straker. Ben claiming that he's uh, he's human and he's Barlow's bodyguard, telling Bill that they can they can kill him any way that they that they would like to. 
He wonders why they came there. Ben calling out some reasons, um, calling out some reasons why, knowing that Barlow has possibly done this for, for centuries. Bill holds back tears, not knowing how to believe this. They pull, they pull up to his house, rushing to the front. Ben calling Susan a good girl when he notices the Hawthorne uh, uh, above. Bill asks where Anne is. Um, Susan says that she's in her room. Ben hugs Susan. She asks what happened. He sits her down telling her about Marjorie and, and that she's a vampire as well, instructing her to leave town. She wonders about her parents. Um, he tells her that Bill is going to stay with, stay and help him. And I would have, if I was Bill, I was like, like hell I am. What the fuck? I didn't tell you that. <laughs> Shit, I'm leaving. You doing 100%. this shit by yourself, man? <laughs> Instructed her to leave town with her with her mom and anyone else that uh, she can persuade to leave with her. Next day, Ben is driving to the antique police office. Or, excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. Uh, driving to the uh, police office, uh, he notices Nolly is asleep, but cautiously approaches him, asking for for Parkins. He tells Ben that Parkins called in sick, claiming that it's the first first day of him off the job. Uh, ben asks if he's okay. Nolly tells him that he's he's tired because he didn't sleep much. Dreamt that Ned came to see him, and by him, Nolly is saying this about himself. Ben gets gets just Ben just fucking gets out of there. He's just like, <laughs> okay, well, I know what's happening to you. Meanwhile, Susan rings the doorbell at Eva's boarding house. They don't answer. She tries for the door handle and it is unlocked. She goes into Ben's room looking at his manuscript. Eva comes into the room, startling her, believing that Ben may have gone into town. She asks Eva if she's okay because she looks a little pale. She claims that she's just tired as she sits down saying that she dreamt all, all night. This is interesting. The whole dream thing, like, oh, I've I dreamed all night, and it's just like, so dreaming makes you tired. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I, I was trying to like put the correlation together. Yeah, I wonder if that was like a lack of of medical knowledge at that time or something. Maybe, um, but yeah, it was definitely like, oh, dreams keep you awake because your, it means your mind isn't completely at rest. But right in reality, we know it's like the peak of re- of REM sleep now and whatnot. Exactly. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, I do love her dream though, as far as like this is the, our, our callback to to the bit to the man. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah, I, and I agree with you because um, she's chuckling as she massages her neck, speaking about Weasel being young, kissing her on the neck, and that's great. That's great. Like I, I love that. Like we hear this about Weasel and what actually yeah. happened to Weasel. It's just like because okay, our heard. introduction to him is like, oh, I don't know why she married him. He's such a bum. But then it's like you can tell she actually loved him at one time, and he was yeah. like this, you know, great guy or whatever. And she misses that time, and that's why when he entranced her um, to to bite her, he was that version of himself to her. And I thought that was right. kind of cool. I wish we could have seen it, but obviously as we were saying, there's so many things going on. They couldn't show everything. Exactly. Um, she cries for weasel. Susan suggesting her to lie down. Eva gets up saying that she will. Susan uncomfortable with her presence as she keeps an eye on her um, moving out of the room. <laughs> she lo- and She's like, fuck, vampires are real. <laughs> she looks out of the window at the Marston house. Susan decides to drive to the house. Um, and it's like, have you learned nothing? She approaches the <laughs> ominous house, the cloud shading the, the uh, shading above. She is about to run back to her car, but notices something running uh, through the bushes. It is Mark running to the house's basement. She follows him up the hill. Mark picks picks the lock to the basement. Susan struggling to get up the hill, making it uh, to him to get uh, making 
making it to him, getting the door open. He goes inside the basement as she hesitantly follows down there to him. You couldn't just like call out to him. Oh, sorry. Real quick. Yeah. Uh, Right, right in that scene. I meant to say this. uh, There's a shot from above the cemetery. That's, Mm -hmm. that's literally the Ferndale cemetery looking down on that section of the main street of the town. That is so fucking cool. I, you know, I, I love hearing like small town horrors, uh, and it's not even horrors. It's just like this is just how the small town is. But I love hearing this. Like this is that is so cool to me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know why she just can call out to him. My grandpa is buried in that cemetery. Just throwing that out. There. Really? <laughs> yep. Oh. Yo, okay, shout sorry. out to Grandpa. You can, you can, count, you can continue now. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. In the dark, she searches around for Mark. The room filling the wind, shutting the basement door and creaking open another one. She slowly goes up the stairs um, toward the door, creaking it open to the uh, room full of destroyed furniture. She hears a noise calling out to Mark. Oh, now you decide to fucking call him. <laughs> Her calling a little bit louder, walking into an animal statue, it falling on the ground. The fog fills the room, rats traveling over her feet. Marcus upstairs, walking across other rooms. This is fucking gorgeous, though. Yeah. Like the shot of it, it's a wide angle shot showing us both perspectives of Mark above her walking, looking around for this door of where this vampire possibly will be and her downstairs in search of Mark and just like, yo, what the fuck you doing up in here? When the real question is just like, why are you here? I didn't understand why Susan even went there in the first place. I I assume that she went to the house to see if, if Ben was already there. And then when he wished she couldn't tell that he was there, she was just going to leave because it was a creepy and B he wasn't there. And then of course, Mark showed up. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Make <laughs> a plot armor. Right, yeah, that's true. He opens a drawer, cat's eyes and rats um, inside. Uh, he looks at all of the dead stuffed animals around the room. Susan slowly, fo- and he's just like, I'm home. Uh, Susan slowly follows the noise. Of- <laughs> I feel like Marcus was like, huh, being a vampire actually probably wouldn't be this bad. <laughs> Susan slowly follows the noises of, of where Mark is. She walks down the hallway, Mark popping out uh, with the stake. Susan screaming from his appearance. He asks uh, what she is doing there. She tells him that she followed him in and they need to uh, get out of there. He tells her that Barlow killed his parents. She, uh, uh, she rebut- she rebuttals that they uh, that he can't do it and it is about to and is about to explain that Ben and her dad are going to do it instead. They stop speaking when they hear something, but continue trying to convince e- convince each other. Or, but she continues trying to convince him to leave with her. Another noise inside the house: a door slamming. Mark, knowing that he's there, readying himself to attack. He goes inside a room, leaving Susan outside for a moment. She follows him. Mark drops to the floor. She checks on. She checks on him. Straker slamming the door shut, reaching out for her to come with him. He opens the door, pulling her out of the room. He ties. He ties up to a chair, knowing that. Uh, knowing they'll. Um, They'll hold him until tonight. Mark doesn't understand what uh, what will happen tonight, wondering that, uh, wondering what he's done to Susan. Straker claims that he took her to meet the man that she came here to meet. Cut to Parkins and his uh, family pick, packing up uh, to leave town. I love this. I love yeah. that Parkins is just like, fuck this. Y'all was right yeah. the whole time. I'm out. 
when you when you go to the police station and he's like, oh yeah, he he called in sick for the first time. You're thinking, oh vampire, yeah vampire, done in, yeah <laughs> exactly. He's, he's getting but the heck he, out of there. <laughs> exactly. And I love that. I love that. He's just like, yeah, I, this town is fucking cuckoo bananas right now. I'm going to leave. <laughs> Vince speeds down the street, asking Parkin where he's going. Parkin quickly tells him South Carolina. Ben yells that Barlow is in the house and that he's a vampire that needs to be destroyed. He as he frantically puts his luggage inside the car. Ben knows that he's scared and trying to run away. Parkin uh, Parkin's uh, fine with him running, the pro- running to protect his family and that he's not the constable anymore. He hands Ben a gun from his cruiser since he's staying. <laughs> ben yelling at him for running as, as he speeds away. I don't blame him. Nope. I'm out. I'm out of there. Ben speeds down the road. Meanwhile, Mark is trying to wiggle out from his restraints. Ben goes to the hospital to see Bill. He tells him that Parkins is fleeing town. Uh, Bill asks if he's seen Susan, but he thought they uh, that they would already be gone. He tells Ben that Anne is still waiting for her at home. Ben smashes down the road to fill up a vial of, of holy water. Bill asking if Callahan is in there, but nobody is there. Bill wondering if it's blessed. Ben, um, ben thinking that the fact that it is holy water being good enough for him. They continue driving fast as fuck to the yeah. Marston house. They're driving fast as shit. And I very much believe that they are literally driving that fast. Which which is funny because like that church versus where the Marston house is, is like four blocks. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> they continue driving, both of them are running up the stairs to the front door. Ben stops. Bill not understanding why, reminding him that Susan is inside. Mark comes running out of the house of Ben grabbing him he tells he tells him that they're inside been telling them uh to run and not stop they head inside taking in the decay uh the, the decay of the structure bill calls out to ben to snap out of whatever he's going on whatever is going on with him ben continues into the kitchen a door opens upstairs bill goes to check it out while ben takes out takes out the holy water bill uh, and yeah why are y'all splitting up like yeah, what the fuck y'all doing know. this is ridiculous um, I also thought that the fear uh, that he showed in the beginning of that um, shows his connection to that house and and that house actually has like power, you know, emanating from it. Absolutely. Uh, And it it reminded me exactly of the looks that like Straker gave the house when he got that nervous look. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I am so glad you brought that up, Phil, because that is exactly the type of context that I saw as well, where Straker always felt like someone was watching him mm. when he was uh, when he was on that doorstep or in the house yeah. and things like so that. one one really interesting thing from part one um is who killed the dog because it was before barlow had been delivered i and, assume it was straker but i don't know why but did he just find the dog annoying like uh, yeah like we I, never get any context to that and it happens before any of the vampiric stuff really starts to to take right. hold and the dog um, technically dies when cully's walking away yeah it's really interesting um, yeah, it's very odd but like it it does lead to the idea of like is there something else going on because like the building shaking earlier or the way the wind picks up, like these are supernatural phenomena that don't necessarily have anything to do with the vampires themselves, minus the mist. Yeah. yeah. It's just interesting. You know, this reminds me of 30 Days of Night, actually, with the dog. Um, because like in 30 Days of Night, they actually did kill all the dogs. All the all, and mm. the familiar in 30 Days of Night had to do that. 
Um, and sorry yeah. for future spoilers for if oh we ever cover Thirty Days of Night. So but. maybe that that makes a lot of sense because the dog would be barking and maybe right. it would make their jobs harder of infiltrating the town. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So I, I'm I'm curious as to as to that being the reason why the dog is yeah. there. Yeah. So. Bill slowly continues up the stairs, Ben taking out the gun. Mark comes back inside the house, Ben grabbing him, yelling that he told him uh, to go and run. Mark screams no. Meanwhile, Mark, if you don't get your ass up out of here. Meanwhile, (laughs) Bill continues in the hallway, a door closing in front of him. He continues going toward the door anyway. Stricker comes out of the door, grabbing Bill and picking him up uh, from his his arms. This is great. You're just like, oh, shit. (laughs) This yeah. motherfucker's strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, he's always walking around, like, not with a cane, but, like, you see him playing with the canes earlier in the right. movie and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, he just picks this guy up like he's nothing. Yeah. And then just, just like paper. walks him, just walks him into this room of, of Very death calmly. antlers for some reason. Yeah. Um, but just, and just like presses him against it. Like, he's literally, like you said, great. paper. And it's like, Jesus, it's how strong great. is this guy? He takes Bill, um, pieces. Uh, excuse me. He takes Bill, placing him on the horns that are displayed on the wall, and this is that is great. And I I love that this is from Toby Hooper because, I mean, just a year or two prior, no, yeah, a year or two prior, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah, like he had the opportunity to do this in Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well, even though we technically don't see the hook go right. in, but same kind of concept. So I love I love that, and I consider that a, a homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. Absolutely. Stricker grabs a beam from the stairs. Ben shoots him, but he continues going down the stairs. He points, he points the beam at him, but drops it to the floor, collapsing to the ground. Ben calls for Bill. No answer. Mark reminding him that uh, it is getting dark and that they need to go so- inside the cellar. Real quick, when he's dying after getting shot, yeah, uh, he reaches out and he touches the post, the post, yeah, to the, to the house, yeah, reaffirming in my mind that the, he has some sort of connection with the house, yeah, and that's that whatever's watching him is like he's he's almost like sorry I failed, right, and it's it's even, and I and to take that that uh, as a, a bit further when he kind of rips a piece off of the house to use as a weapon and use as some, some type of way to combat, uh, uh, Ben, it, it, it's great. It's really, really great. And I, I agree. Like, it's kind of like a, like an apology when he touches the beam of the house and yeah. it kind of reminds me of monster house in a way, <laughs> but like it, it's, it's feels like an apology, uh, to the beam of the house. And, um, on top of that, uh, uh that apology, like what, what, what stands out to me, it's kind of like, like a transfer of power. Like, like it goes yeah, back to the back house. To the house. Oh, that's, that's really, really cool. Interesting. Mark runs falling off the top of the stairs. Ben check, um, checks on him. Mark claiming that he's fine and just hurt his ankle. They're moving around the cellar. Ben knowing that Barlow is close by. Mark finds a padlock door calling out to Ben that is there. He inspects it, commenting that it is the root cellar door. Ben takes out a hammer and and the holy water, dropping it on the ground, shattering the bottle. The water turning into smoke. A really cool effect and so yeah. cool. Um, what was it's um, 
the vampires in the Bronx. Uh, vampires versus uh, yes, vampires yes. versus the Bronx. Yes, mm-hmm. um, they br- they actually bring that idea back of the the yes. holy water boiling when the vampires are close and so fucking. Um, cool. I thought that was just a really yeah cool thing to see. Um, now I will tell you that those boards looked super flimsy. If yes. it were me. I would have made the huge mistake of just breaking those boards. And that would have been the worst move I've ever make because of a scene we'll see in just a moment. Yes, but- <laughs> yes absolutely. Ben starts clobbering the hell out of the padlock until it opens, pulling the door open, entering the room of Barlow's coffin and some sleepy little vampires surrounding it. They, they analyze the room, Ben suggesting that they need to get Barlow out of there. He hands Mark the bag, sneaking to the coffin, dragging it out of the sailor. Uh, they push it out, Ben inspecting the coffin for an opening. Mark notices the, that the sun's going, uh, going down um, and Ben still continues op- continues opens the coffin. Barlow asleep inside. Barlow jolts his head, staring at him. Ben yelling and pushing Mark um to not look at him. Barlow springs up, threw him across the room. Oh, he yeah, he fucking chucked him. <laughs> I, I even put. I was like, damn, why'd you have to push him so hard? <laughs> like, damn, dude. Barlow's like, don't look at him. Push like like, <laughs> like, like, like he shoves the shit out of him. It's just like. Fuck, dude, you're looking at him. Like, what right. the hell? I wasn't even looking. <laughs> Barlow springs up, Ben pushing him down, piercing him with a stake. Barlow writhes and screams, staring at Ben, Mark watching by the cellar door. And I'm just, I hate that this was this easy. Mm. I wish there would have been a little bit more of something. I but. do I do love how brutal the scene is. I, like, oh I mean, my out God. of all the things we've seen in the movie so far, the violence in and of itself has been so tame, I guess. Yeah. And so just to see him just like with all of his might, just repeating, slamming that stake into him with the hammer. It was like, yes. oh my God. It's brutal. It is um, absolutely yeah. brutal. It'll love a little bit of blood splatter on his face, but yeah, it was brutal. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, I definitely think that it was a little anticlimactic in that regard. Um, it would have been nice to see a little bit more of a struggle from the right. ultimate force that is Barlow. Or a little bit harder, you know, like yeah. a, a little bit harder to get to him or something like that. I um, mean, did you see how easy he moved that giant casket? Like, <laughs> my that's God. True. Like, damn, Ben, you also <laughs> strong. Um, the, the My favorite scene actually right here. The vampires slowly crawl toward Mark as Ben is hammering the shit out of Barlow. Mark turns around noticing them, shutting the door, trying to jam the lock with a screwdriver um, as they bang on it. It's fucking great. Like I, I love how their eyes are glowing in the darkness yeah. and they're crawling slowly towards him. And it, it's so fucking cool. Yeah. So cool. no. I, I love it. Yeah. And how subtle they are about it. Cause you see them kind of start crawling towards him, um, you know, and moving as the night gets darker and as they start to hear their master getting, you know, destroyed, but yes. like they don't just throw it in your face. They they just keep kind of slowly moving forward. They're just creeping. Yeah. So good. Really good. Ben delivers the final blow. He tells Mark to get um, get out as Barlow slowly turns into bones. This also looks fucking awesome. Yeah. Ben calls for Susan. Cut to Mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is great. Cut to Mark and Ben out, then outside of the house, pouring <laughs> gas and setting it on fire. Ben just gave zero <laughs> fucks about Susan after that. I just, <laughs> I'm like, he, he's like, Susan. Right. He's like, Susan. 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 <laughs> Susan. And, then, and then 
Sorry, Susan. Yeah, it's just like, all right, I tried. <laughs> I called you. I tried. I tried. You just, it's just like, whatever. It's, it was seven days. You're moving to Boston anyway. Like, fuck <laughs> 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 it. Ben gave zero fucks about Susan's ass, apologizing and asking for her forgiveness as they drive off. And the house is left engulfed by flames. They stop driving for a moment. Ben to grieve after losing his two-week-old relationship. Mark lo- looks back, commenting that the town will burn. Ben suggesting that uh, that it will get them out of their hiding places. Mark wonders if they're if all of them, but Ben doesn't think so, claiming that it will purify Salem's lot and the others will be on on the run and hunt. Mark, knowing he means for them, quick cut back to uh, back to the house. The vampire screaming from the roaring fr- flames, the cellar window breaking from the heat, um, and then back to the beginning of part one in Guatemala now, two years later. Do you think that that was her chance to escape from the fire? Was the the window breaking from the heat there? So this is what I think. And and, then bear with me on this one, because this is what I think. I think Straker knew Barlow was going to die. And I think the pass of power was supposed to be on to Susan. I think Mm. she became the new master. Interesting. That would explain why she doesn't look, I guess, nearly as dead as yeah. the other ones yeah she looks completely fine and she's the only one who technically has barlow's complete set of yellow eyes yeah oh, so dude. i feel like she was actually supposed to be transitioning power for the the one to kind of keep the hive going so i think she was changed but she was changed specifically by barlow and that's interesting. That's what I think. Cause I think Straker and Parlo both kind of came to acceptance of death of that. They knew that they both were going to die. And on top of that, they, it, it didn't seem like Barlow lived forever. It seemed like Barlow was centuries, uh, centuries old and him being so old, it seemed like that still was taking a toll on him. It didn't seem like he lived forever. It yeah. seemed like he eventually turned into that. I definitely feel like the older vampires get, the more Nosferatu-like they get in right. this universe. Yeah. So, and that's, yeah. That's I mean, what this felt like. Um, and Straker being old, like, you know, it, it, it's interesting. And I've never seen Return to Salem's Lot. Everyone keeps telling me don't. But <laughs> I, I assume something is is in there as well as maybe with her old familiar or something like that. And, and, and who knows? I don't know, but it's interesting. Ben and Mark are filling up the uh, vials with holy water. Ben gasping as the vials glow, knowing that they have been found again. Mark suggests that they go further, but Ben doesn't want to just yet. They're walking to the town, going inside a house. Ben pulls out the glowing vial, handing it to Mark before going to a different section of the house. He notices Susan on the bed, calling out to him. She tells him that that she found um, that she, she tells him that she found him and she loves him. Continuing that he was so difficult to find, he drops his bag, telling her that he knows. 
She tells him that they'll they'll always be together and young, uh, loving each other forever. Susan opens her yellowed eyes, telling him to kiss her. Her tr- um, he's tranced, or at least she thinks so. Going <laughs> in slowly toward her um, as she continues asking him to kiss her, he plunges the stake into her, sobbing as she screams. Ben comes out, telling Mark that there'll be others. He asks Ben to uh, Ben if they go um, if they should go now. Um, uh, ben nodding his head as they pack up. The camera panning to an unnecessarily skull-shaped into the moon. <laughs> credits. And get direct, you get the, the like directed by and then the cool little animations of the credits so from cool. the beginning of the movie again. Yeah, it's so cool. It's like it's like typing in and it, it's, yeah. it, it's cool. Like it, it's really, really fun and really cleverly done. And ultimately, this movie just fucking rules. Like yeah. the three hours, honestly, even though the in the first half, it's pretty slow. Yeah, I would say the pretty, pretty quick. I would say the first hour of this movie feels like the last two hours of this movie. <laughs> That is fair. That is very fair. Like it, that is, I agree. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely does. Uh, because the, the last two hours of this movie, it's just constant. It's just go 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 yeah, go, 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 go go go. And I, I I'm trying to like even think back like like if I were in the 70s watching this, I'm just like fuck. I would have to wait a week after this fucking vampire child bit this man. Uh, you tell me I gotta wait a week to see the conclusion to this. Yeah. Oh man, and the max I have is the only mini series that I remember from that I was actually, I guess, technically alive for that I've watched on TV. I think was Rose Red, which I think was like the last mini series from Stephen King. Yeah, that was two thousand two, and Rose Red was the last one. Um, but I remember watching it. Uh, because Kimberly J. Brown was in it. This was before I even like was a big Stephen King fan. <laughs> I was just like, oh shit, the chick from Halloween Town's in this? Hell yeah, I'm going to watch this. <laughs> but I remember this actually being three parts, though. I don't remember it being two. I think it was three parts long. Oh, that might uh, make sense, like an hour apiece. Yeah, and I think that's what it was. It was an hour apiece. Um, and I'm looking at it now. Yep, three parts. I do wonder how the reception for part one would have been back in the day, like that first episode. I wonder if people were just kind of like, oh, I don't know uh, about this. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know, I'm curious. I'm very curious. Not saying that it's bad, like just saying it's much slower than the rest of the movie. Right. Um, So like seeing that in like a one part and then having to wait a week to see the next part, I wonder how that was received. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious. I mean, it must have been received pretty fine because they kind of kept continuing these miniseries. Sure. After yeah. that. But that's true. I mean, okay. um, but was... I got some movie facts for us okay. here. Movie facts? Hey, I was wondering if you're gonna do it. That's awesome. See, this is why I love having fans on this show. <laughs> this is great. Um, director George A. Romero was originally approached to direct the feature film version, but after announcements of John Badham's Dracula in 1979 and uh, Werner Horzog's Nosferatu the Vampire in 1979, Warner Brothers decided to turn Salem's Lot into a TV miniseries. This is when Romero dropped out, feeling that he wouldn't be able to actually have his vision really shown or portrayed because of the restrictions of network television. Hmm. That would have been really interesting to see. Yeah, that would have I been mean, really interesting to see. 
George Romero, when it's not zombies, even when it is zombies, like he's just a fantastic storyteller. Yeah. I mean, something about him. He, he birthed one of my favorite, you know, uh, movies, which is the crazies. Um, and then oh my the God, follow up with the remake of the crazies. So I love that you said that right now. Cause that's also my favorite Romero flick as well. So yeah, I, nice. we just became best friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it absolutely like George A. Romero. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see the amusement park yet, Oh um, no! but Check out the amusement park. It's available on Shutter exclusively. It is very short, but it makes you feel so fucking bad about old people. Sure. Like and getting old. Like it is so traumatizing. Sounds like and a very personal story to him. Super and what was personal going on in his life. Super personal. And it it's so very, very well done. And it was archived. It was never shown. This was the first time that it was shown. So it was really cool to see it all oh, like done cool. up and remastered for now. It's great. Um, although this adaption differs dramatically in a lot of different uh, areas from the novel, notably the depiction of Chief uh, Vampire Mr. Barlow, Stephen King uh, approved of it. Interesting. Hmm. Stephen King was inspired to write the book when he um, when he had his English teacher read Dracula and became curious about what would happen if vampires came to America, specifically in a small town. That makes a lot of sense because I was thinking of Dracula when, you know, they're shipping in the container um, and putting it under the house. Like that totally reminded me of Dracula. Right. Um, And that also explains why they adhere very specifically to those vampiric rules. Um, Right. That makes total sense. Makes total sense. This was the first television miniseries in the second film to be based on the writings of, of Arthur Stephen King. Didn't know that. Oh, that's cool. The miniseries uh, was filmed with several alternative uh, scenes done with the intention of producing a shorter cut that would play in European cinemas. Interesting. Whoa. I didn't know that either. That's great. The idea of different scenes for a shorter cut is interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is very interesting. For the theatrical release, a few scenes from the miniseries were reshot to make the film version more gory. I got to get my hands on this film version. (laughs) What? I got to get my hands on this film version. In an interview with uh, Reggie Nalder, the actor actor said that the contact lenses and heavy makeup work he had to wear for the role of Kurt Barlow was quite painful and took some time to get adjusted to. I actually have an add-on to that. Ooh, please Um, do. The vampire makeup involving glowing contact lenses was invented by Jack Young, According to Toby Hooper, the makeup on actor Reggie Nader, uh, that, uh, Nalder, Nalder? Um, would constantly fall off, as well as the fake nails and teeth, and the contact lenses would go sideways. The contact lenses would only be worn for 15 minutes at a time before they had to be removed and let the actor rest for 30 minutes. Oh, shit. That's awesome. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> Um, in October 2013, um, Interata uh, Records released a two CD set of the complete film score with alternate cues for the edited version of the film, which were re-recorded for said edit in stereo, marking the world premiere release of the score of the score. That's really cool. That is really cool. 
Let's get a let's get I a like, juicy one, and then we'll go ahead. I like how the score in this movie kind of um, flows too, where it's like it's not always there. It's not in your face. I have a problem. I'm probably gonna get some flack for this, but I have a problem with Nolan films because Nolan films, Christopher Nolan just shoves the score into your face. And it's like throughout and constant in the entire movie. And I always love, I think that's one of the things that draws me to horror films is they take time to just let the movie be quiet for a quick minute. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And they give you a break and it's, it's even interesting when you kind of have movies that are trying to give you this exponential dread, like hereditary for perfect example, uh, where it has that drone noise throughout the whole film and you notice it every now and then you're just like, wait, was that there before? And you're, mm-hmm. it is like, it's in the whole film and it's weird and jarring and fucking genius. But we're not talking about him. The biggest <laughs> issues that divide that divides fans of the novel and miniseries is the fact that Barlow is depicted as a hissing Nosferatu-like monster in the adaption, as opposed to the speaking Dracula-like character in the novel. So I was right. Yeah. Um, in an interview with Richard Corbett, he said the decision to go with the terrifying monster figure came out of concerns that a speaking romanticized villain would... Uh, uh, just wouldn't be frightening enough, especially as John Batum's remake of Dracula, starring Frank Languella, was released in 1979. Stephen King was was against the change at first, but after he saw the footage, he thought it may help the audience focus more on the main characters. That's amazing. Interesting. Holy I mean, shit. They obviously wouldn't have had the ability to see Let the Right One In yet. Right. Just to show you how terrifying a cute little girl vampire can be. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, I'm I'm sure like and I like I said, I think this works great having Straker be yeah. the main I guess face. Um because in like I said in the two thousand four version, I guess that one is more on the novel, which I, I think uh God, it's the, it's the man who passed away, and I, I, I think his Ruder Huger, I think that's his name, Hauer, uh, Ruder uh, Hauer, oh. uh, the Dutch actor. He was the he was Barlow. Gotcha. Uh, um, and it was super interesting to to kind of see him play Barlow. Like it was he was great, but then you had someone like Rob Lowe, who was uh, Ben. Whoa. And I mean, it, it was against Rob Lowe, but. That does but, not yeah, seem it was, like a great. It bed. was interesting. It is it, it it doesn't work. But uh <laughs> but the the reason why um Bruder worked so well was because he he brought his characteristics from the hitcher inside of uh inside of it. And he was just so odd and so intimidating. Inside the 2004 version, so I, I definitely will give um, that for the 2004 version. But other than that, don't watch it. Um, but definitely let us know over on Twitter at Nightlight underscore Pod what you think about this movie about Salem's Lot. We definitely want to keep the conversation going for sure. Um, and once again, Phil, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you? Um, Because you have a fantastic show, as I stated previously. And just to reiterate, I do want people to be able to find you on this one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So you can find me on Twitter at Phil J. Woodward, and that's Phil with two L's. Uh, You can find me on uh, Simply Sassy Vids through our show Out of Our League. 
uh, and that's youtube.com slash um, Simply Sassy Vids or any podcast service. You can search uh, Simply Sassy prevent, uh, Presents uh, out of our league. And we just we interview a lot of cool people, whether it's from uh, movie journalism, games journalism, um, movies themselves. I mean, we've had actors on the show. Um, one great uh, actor we had on the show was uh, Tommy Earl Jenkins. Um, that's awesome. And we got to talk a lot about his Broadway work um, overseas and talking about how he did plays in other languages that weren't his native language. So, for example, he did a, a play in Italy, like in Italian, when he doesn't natively speak Italian. That's really cool. Uh, so, yeah. He's insanely talented. Head over there and check that stuff out. Definitely. Definitely Thank you do. So much. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and for the, the short span of, of time frame that I gave you. Um, <laughs> um, and those for you who are a little confused, uh, I actually put a tweet out for this particular episode, not saying what the episode was, but that we needed some help in having a co-guest on. A lot of you hit me up and thank you so much for hitting me up and DMing me. I think I had something close to about 20 or 30 DMs um, for people hitting me up to, to come on the show. So thank you um, for your interest, but it definitely was first come first serve. We are trying to figure something out to where our fans can come on the show a lot more often. And this even goes for fans who live in the Bay Area or in California who want to make a little bit of a trek uh, to San Francisco to actually be physically here. So more news on that later. But the next movie we're going to do to continue our second month into Stephen King Horror Month, happy birthday Stephen King, is Misery. And I cannot fucking wait. (laughs) Cannot wait. But this was Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I was your host, Prince, also known as Head Knight. And alongside me, we had our ghoulish knight, Philip J. Wedward. Thank you so much, my friend, for joining once again. Our efforts to get the show out is not enough. We need your help to spread us out to more ghoulish nights. Rating us with five stars is very helpful, but we would love for you to recommend this podcast to someone who would actually enjoy it. You can further support the show over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife. That's not what they would. My pleasure on Patreon. You have access to the show ad free and as early as Monday with a post show. If you don't have any bucks to toss, don't worry. An episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. And remember, everybody, don't forget your nightlife.